You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, everybody. Uh, the hardy few trekked through the wilds of the Washington winter. Welcome. Uh, my name is Nancy Lindbergh. I'm the president of the United States Institute of Peace. Um, and very happy to see you. I want to invite people to keep coming on down to the front. Um, and we hope that folks will continue to, to join us through the morning. Great to see uh, so many friends and colleagues. Um, and for those of you who are relatively new to, U to USIP, just a, a note that we were founded in 1984 by Congress as an independent, federal, nonpartisan institution dedicated to the proposition that peace is a very practical undertaking and that it's very possible and absolutely essential for global uh, and national security. And so USIP uh, realizes our vision of a world without violent conflict by working globally with partners on the ground in conflict zones, uh, equipping them with the kind of research tools and approaches that enable them to prevent violent conflict uh, or to resolve it when it does become violent. Um, so we are delighted to host this event this morning. Um, I want to uh, welcome an old friend and colleague, Alina Romanowski, who's the uh, acting principal deputy coordinator for counterterrorism in the State Department's Bureau of Counterterrorism and Countering Violent Extremism. And I'll introduce her more properly in a moment, but we're very grateful for the collaboration with Alina and her team, especially Oliver Wilcox, who will be on the panel this morning, who's also an old friend and colleague. Um, and uh, he, along with um, several wonderful colleagues, Robin Simcox, for, uh, who's a Thatcher Fellow at Heritage, a terrific partner of ours, um, and uh, one of our USIP Fellows, uh, Dr. Ann Wainscott. Um, and they will uh, be joined by Melissa Nozell, who is um, one of our uh, specialists here at USIP, who co-authored the paper today that will be launched, a, a special report on the role of religious actors in countering violent extremism. Um, so together, uh, our panel will consider how policymakers and practitioners can work better with people of faith to prevent and resolve uh, and combat violent extremism. This is a critical issue, especially, you know, it has been for a number of years, but especially right now as we um, look at the near defeat of ISIS um, from holding territory in Iraq and increasingly Syria, uh, and recognize that ultimately these will not be military solutions. So what are the ways to most effectively engage um, with religious actors around the world? and? The, the special report, and I urge you to pick up a copy, takes a look at that, and we will have a terrific discussion with this group uh, exploring that um, about, and, and especially how do we translate this kind of research, these learnings, these policies into practice. Um, USIP operates on the understanding that there will always be conflict in the world, and the question is, how do we better understand how conflict can be transformative as opposed to violent violence. 
And uh, one of the keys to doing this is to really understand more, more deeply the underlying complex causes and drivers of violent extremism. And in this case, the critical role of religious actors is a very important part of this and part of an ongoing debate uh, that we'll hear more about today. Um, so we're looking forward to a very interesting and timely conversation. And it is my great pleasure now to introduce Alina Romanowski, who has uh, been the principal deputy coordinator for counterterrorism at State since November 2016. Um, she, there, she oversees the coordination and integration of State Department and U.S. government's international efforts to advance specific counterterrorism policy objectives and develops and Im implements programs to, violent, uh, to counter violent extremism. She was previously at State as the coordinator for U.S. assistance to Europe and Eurasia. Um, I had the great pleasure of serving alongside Alina at USAID, where she was the, both the deputy assistant administrator at the Middle East Bureau and also the acting administrator. Um, 13 years at the Department of Defense um, with a long roster of awards. And I just want to say that especially these days, Alina really exemplifies the kind of public service. Her entire career has been in public service. I know many of you here in this room have spent your lives in public service, and this is an extraordinarily important calling. So thank you to all of you, and please join me in welcoming and thanking Alina. Well, good morning. And um, I'm glad everybody's here or navigated the few inches of snow. I'm from Chicago, so whenever I see this, I think, what is this? Again, Washington, after th being here almost 38 years, I'm thinking they still don't have the snowplow thing done. But I'm glad you were able to come, because I think this is really an exciting, um, really exciting and very important event. Um, Nancy, thank you for that really warm introduction, and also for sh uh, a great shout out for public service, I think. Um, Many of you who have been in and out of government or are considering it, I strongly encourage you to do it because there's nothing better than being able to shape policy and recommendations and then, most importantly, rely on all of you outside in the private sector um, in academia for helping us to shape um, really important issues of the day. Um, and thanks USIP also for uh, working um, this event and for letting us be part of collaborating and thinking about how we can um, shape a conversation about this important topic. Uh, thanks to Peter uh, Mandeville and Melissa Nozel and Susie Hayward and other experts for their ongoing work on this important issue. And, and very much congratulate Peter and Melissa for the publication of, in August of, the, of um, the report on engaging religion and religious actors in countering violent extremism. Uh, I just want to leave you with a couple of thoughts as I help to kick off this important conversation today. Um, religious leaders, uh, communities, and institutions really have a critical role to play in preventing uh, and uh, countering violent extremism. But I think you'll hear today that the role is pretty complex. Uh, we have been doing a lot of programming in this bureau. Um, my experience at AID also, when we were um, working on these issues, you really do need community-based engagement, uh, very um, focused uh, and working with all of the um, uh, members and actors in a community to go after those who are recruiting, inspiring, um, uh, 
the younger generation and others in the community, but also to engage with the community to make sure that um, there's a different there's a different message. There are different alternatives. There are different approaches to um, uh, terrorism and to uh, uh, violent radicalization. Um, so. When you look at the religious leaders, we think they play a very critical role. Um, but you can't just assume that just because of their theological or moral authority that such actors are automatically effective in CVE efforts. And I think this conversation will show how, uh, what the special role that religious uh, leaders can play. Um, religious actors, uh, like many others who are engaged in this, are uh, going to face their own challenges in the CVE space. Uh, they include not only having the ability to influence or, um, or the media skills to connect with specific vulnerable populations. We always assume that they have an all-knowing approach, but I think being able to help them in engaging with this uh, unique population is also a very important um, opportunity um, and important role that we can help um, impart our best practices and our knowledge as well. Um, effect, we have found also that effective CVE work uh, needs multiple community-based actors uh, partnering and working together. Um, and how do you collaborate uh, with teachers, social workers, and others? And everybody comes at it with a very unique perspective, with unique talents, and how do you pull all that together? Uh, very much, we advocate a whole of society approach to it, and we've seen some um, pretty positive impact across the board over the last uh, couple years that we've been doing a lot of this. It's also really imperative that the younger religious leaders are included in the CVE. Um, as many of you know, if you have kids, they listen to their peers more than they listen to their parents. <laughs> and so the, the, the more you can find peers to talk to them about um, uh, their life experiences, or if there are not very many life experiences, at least to be able to help um, shape their understanding of it. Um, but generationally and socially, the younger um, um, uh, religious leaders are important to engage. And I know we're not supposed to talk about age because that's not appropriate, but let's be honest, it really is an important, um, uh, uh, a, a it can be a very important factor in, in engaging uh, the community. Um, also for their part, let's not forget that women can hold uh, informal religious positions or influence within their own social or community cir uh, circles, and how does that get brought into the conversation as well. Um, so if we forget about these uh, interesting dynamics and, and, and unique positions, I think sometimes we can limit our reach and our influence of CVE engagement and what we're trying to do. Um, and as I said, uh, research I think has showed and also practical experience demonstrates that youth are often more influenced by their peers. So let's get their peers involved. Um, um, I think USIP is a wonderful uh, place where we can have this conversation because um, they have already been involved in a whole range of conflict prevention and post-conflict uh, reconciliation context around the world. So I think this is a very good environment where not only can they bring um, uh, like-minded people together, but they can bring their vast experience in conflict resolution and um, to, to the table in these conversations. Um, the challenges, I think, for policymakers and practitioners is how do we learn from this? 
How do we leverage and adapt the areas of earlier work to the CVE objective? And you know it's changing all the time because guess what? The terrorists are also, frankly, in many cases, one step of, ahead of us on the messaging and how they're engaging, particularly when you look at uh, their use of the internet. Um, so that um, we certainly are looking forward to this dialogue today and to hear the feedback on the conclusions and the recommendations that all of you will uh, come to, I'm sure, brilliantly by the end of the day, uh, because we learn a lot from not just the publications um, that we that USIP puts out and others, frankly, in the in the community, but also just the conversation. It's a live, real conversation, and, and a sense of uh, the different views are really important because, as you know, when it comes to community-based um, engagement, it's very specific to um, the dynamics of a community. Sometimes, when when uh, when people are being uh, recruited and young people are being encouraged and inspired uh, to go down a pretty uh, wrong path. So um, I leave you with a couple of thoughts, uh, let you know that we are very interested in your feedback and your observations. Oliver's here to get into a little uh, greater detail about um, sort of our approach um, and our policies. I sort of feel like I've come out of a couple of months of, of deep dives on um, uh, reframing much of what we are doing on counterterrorism policy at the, at the State Department and in the, um, the community, but I think it is, um, it is very clear to us that um, uh, working in the CVE space is a very important component of our policy. Um, it's just a question of how do we do it, how do we uh, uh, bring the best practices, and how do we make sure that we are focusing in the right areas? Because this is, as many of you know, it's we're in for the long haul, uh, and uh, we're all uh, working hard in this area, and uh, we, we really need to spend a lot of time uh, uh, sharing our, our views and our thoughts on it. So I, I thank you for, for participating, and I thank you also for an active conversation, and welcome very much hearing the feedback. So with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you guys and launch the day. So thank you, and Nancy, again, thanks. Great seeing you. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ms. Romanowski. Thank you, Nancy, for your remarks. And thank you all for being here today. Thank you to those who are tuning in online um, through the webcast um, and for being here, all of you in the room for bracing the storm. Let me start by giving you a little background to the creation of this USIP report. Over the past few years, policymakers and peacebuilding practitioners have become increasingly interested in the role of religion and religious actors to prevent and counter violent extremism. Yet, as you've heard from my colleagues, there remain gaps in understanding how and when to most effectively work with religious ideas, actors, and institutions. This is in part due to lack of understanding about precisely how, religious, how religion intersects with extremism more broadly. There have been re many recent efforts globally to address the intersection of religion and CBE, including several that have been convened by USIP. In 2014, in partnership with the Network for Religious and Traditional Peacemakers, USIP convened religious actors, that is, in, that is formal religious clerics and those not necessarily formally trained who operate in a religious framework, including women and youth, who are working to counter and prevent violent extremism. We brought them here to DC to speak with us, with US, with US policymakers. We learned from them that among many challenges they face, 
many religious actors felt they could not trust their government or security officials, despite the fact that their goals to live in a peaceful society were often shared. The network and USIP subsequently convened religious actors and representatives from the government and security sectors from a dozen countries all working on issues of CBE. We wanted to create a safe space in which to build bridges and to create better cross-sectoral understanding and trust. At the same time, we wanted to increase our own understanding of some of the challenges and good practices to better implement CBE policy inclusively on the ground in partnership with religious actors. We sought to facilitate a frank and sometimes challenging dialogue between religious actors working locally and government representatives working at the federal or international level. In addition to these symposia convened by USIP, there have been many other events convened worldwide in Africa by the UK government or the Forum for Promoting Peace in Muslim Societies. Peter Mandeville and I summarized the themes of these conversations in our report, Engaging Religion and Religious Actors in Countering Violent Extremism. We sought to distill the emerging lessons from these conversations worldwide with the aim to offer recommendations for policymakers and practitioners seeking to engage religious actors effectively and sensitively to prevent and counter violent extremism. In a moment, Peter, joining us by video, will highlight some of the key recommendations from the report. His remarks will be followed by responses from my colleagues here. But first, a couple housekeeping notes. We're taking questions through question cards um, that you should have received when you arrived um, at the entrance. Um, and my colleagues who are standing in the aisles, um, Chelsea and Tonas, um, will be taking your cards when you're ready. So if you have a question that you've written down on your question card, just hold it in the air and they'll keep an eye out and they will collect your cards for you. Um, and we encourage you to uh, submit your questions sooner rather than later to ensure that we may be able to answer your questions. If you'd like to join the conversation online or if you're already participating virtually, um, we are using the hashtag ReligionCVEUSIP. Um, a quick side note, I won't be giving lengthy biographical details for each speaker. You have those in the bios that you should have received when you arrived. Turning back to Peter, Peter Mandeville is the Professor of International Affairs in the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He served as senior, as senior advisor in the Secretary of State's Office on Religion and Global Affairs at the US State Department, and in 2011 to 2012 was a, was a member of Secretary Hillary Clinton's policy planning staff, where he helped to shape the US response to the Arab Spring. He's also the lead author of this special report. <coughs> Unfortunately, we could not have him here in person today because of his travels, um, but he sent his video remarks. Good morning, everyone. I, I'm very sorry not to be there in person, uh, and particularly to miss uh, so many good friends and former colleagues that I know are in the audience. I wanted to spend a few minutes in this brief video uh, talking about some of the uh, recommendations for practitioners and policymakers that are contained in the report that Melissa and I uh, wrote together on um, engaging religion and religious actors in the context of countering violent extremism or, or CVE. 
we, we kind of started from the observation that almost everyone involved in CVE tends to operate with the assumption that religion is part of the picture, part of the equation, if you will, in, in some sense, um, but that, that we rarely drill down in any detail uh, to kind of put some more granularity on that observation. Um, so w one of the starting points that, that comes out of, of, our, of our report um, is the idea that asking whether religion is present as a factor uh, in, that contributes to violent extremism, um, you know, the, the question of whether religion is there or kind of how much as if, as if the, you know, the goal should be to quantify how much religion is present, that's not always the most helpful way to begin. Um, and that we, we may more immediately get a better handle on the issue by rather paying attention to the question of what more specific role or function religion is playing in any given um, instance of violent extremism. So for example, in a situation where religion is primarily providing a sense of identity or uh, solidarity, a form of social bonding, if you will, that that's one kind of function that religion might play. Uh, and in a different kind of situation where, for example, um, specific uh, religious teachings or religious law is being used to justify specific forms of behavior, such as violent acts that might otherwise be considered beyond the pale, that's a rather different kind of function. And so the way that you think about religion and violent extremism and the way you think about responding to it, including responding with religion, uh, will vary depending on what role or function religion is playing. Second recommendation that we have is to um, s urge practitioners and policymakers to be careful about um, thinking about religious leaders and religious, religious institutions as um, uh, entities that should first and foremost provide something like theological antidotes to violent extremism or religious justifications for violent extremism. In, in our observation, there's, there's often a kind of tendency to assume that there's something like you know, violent extremist groups out there that put bad religion out. And so if you kind of um, try to respond to that by disseminating good religion or, or moderate religion, um, as, the, as, the, as the vocabulary often goes, um, that somehow you'll negate the effect of the bad religion. And, um, you know, it's our sense that, that, that the situation is just far more complex than that, um, and that the reasons why um, uh, appeals to young people, efforts to recruit them into violent extremist movements are, are often successful, um, is not just about whether or not a compelling uh, or ideologically sound religious narrative has been provided. There are a whole host of other factors. And kind of thinking that you can uh, effectively counter or negate this uh, and, and you know, thinking that, that you're going to put onto religious leaders the responsibility of doing so uh, uh, you know, through, through theological discourse is not always the best way to proceed. So in that regard, what we would encourage CVE practitioners and policymakers to think about instead is rather the idea that religious leaders, religious institutions may be relevant partners um, uh, for 
addressing many different contributing factors to violent extremism. So, for example, we know that um, you know an individual's personal experience of violence, uh, certain kinds of, of personalized corruption, um, in some instances, socioeconomic deprivation, alienation from society. These are all relevant contributing factors to violent extremism. And so our argument would be that there is a role for religious leaders in these kinds of programs and approaches as well, even when and where religion is not necessarily explicitly present in the CVE contributing factor that you're trying to address. Um, Another recommendation we have uh, is to make sure that one's engagement with religion is broad and inclusive. It's been our observation that there is a tendency to think of the relevant religious leaders as being people who hold formal religious roles. Um, and this, this produces you know, what we often term the, the old men in funny hats effect, that, that, that the assumption is that uh, the people who carry certain kinds of titles uh, or who sit on top of certain kinds of formalized religious hierarchies are the most relevant and important and effective religious voices and leaders to engage, and this, this simply isn't the case. So we would particularly urge CVE practitioners and policymakers to focus on the importance of engaging younger religious leaders uh, and particularly uh, engaging women as religious leaders. It's certainly the case that in many religious traditions, women don't always hold the formal roles and formal titles. Um, but as many sociologists and anthropologists of religion will tell you, in many communities, women do play very important roles as makers and shapers of, um, of religious knowledge uh, and, and as, as thought leaders and shapers of, of, of opinion. Um, th th there's a caveat here, however, in that, in that th there is, I think, probably some risk of um, replacing, I guess, one stereotype with another. Uh, because what we're not arguing is that women should be engaged in CBE because the religious discourse of women is always somehow peaceful and progressive. That, that's certainly not the case. There, there are many women religious leaders in multiple traditions that, that um, uh, actually take a, a pretty hard line uh, on many issues. So you know, this is just a, a kind of qualification to that, which, which kind of warns against the assumption that uh, the nature of, of, of uh, theology, you know, as, as articulated by women religious leaders necessarily looks a certain way. Um, the, the last couple of recommendations I want to touch on really are ones that, that I guess are primarily aimed at, at governments and, and, you know, policy makers, uh, government officials. One is that um, I think it's important to be careful that CVE does not become a form of, of top cover that governments might use um, to increase their authoritarian practices, to regulate ever more sectors of life, including religion, uh, you know, that, that governments don't use CVE as a pretext for, for control. Um, uh, and, and to engage in certain forms of what are, in effect, human rights violations that they're kind of packaging uh, and selling you know, as, as counterterrorism or countering violent extremism. Um, and you know, this extends also to the realm of, of religious freedom. We, we, 
need to make sure that, that religious freedom is not encroached upon in the name of CVE. Um, the final recommendation is one that relates to the way that governments themselves talk about religion, you know, particularly you know, uh, governments such as that of the United States, we feel need to avoid uh, appearing to take positions on matters of theology f for any number of reasons. Um, obviously, the United States government is not recognized as a religious authority. Uh, it has no standing in the eyes of, of many adherents to various world religions to um, put forward views about what is and is not a correct interpretation of religion. Case of the U.S. government, there's also very good legal reasons for not doing so. Of course, you know we, we have uh, in the U.S. Constitution in the First Amendment, you know, the Establishment Clause, which prohibits the federal government uh, from effectively taking position on matters of theology, um, taking normative positions with respect to r religion, um, and, and just generally speaking, we think that there is uh, at least as much risk of doing harm as there is likelihood of doing good when governments become entangled and insert themselves into complex and in many cases centuries long debates about uh, particular theological concepts and, and, and terms. I, I think there's also a kind of corollary to this latter point which, which kind of relates to um, uh, the sorts of religious institutions and leaders that are regarded as what are often termed credible voices. Um, there are any number of governments around the world that have, uh, you know, since the rise of CVE, um, put forward religious institutions and leaders in their country um, as potential partners for the United States and other governments with respect to CVE activities. Um, the, the problem here, I think, is that while many of the scholars associated with state-run religious institutions, you know, do have strong religious credentials, um, uh, and and um, you know the, the 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 relevant formal credentials, um, often these institutions are regarded by populations more broadly as little more than mouthpieces of the governments in question, um, and so. Uh, you know their their effectiveness, I think, needs to often be questioned, and and likewise, just the idea that governments of any sort would be pointing to particular religious leaders um, because they happen to like the views that they're putting forward. Um, it's our concern that governments pointing to particular religious leaders uh, will often have the likelihood, or like, will likely have the effect of, if anything, simply discrediting that person as a legitimate voice. So, you know, th 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 this is a you know, brief overview of, of some of the key recommendations that have come out of our, our, our report. Um, and I'm um, very grateful to all of you for, for coming out uh, this morning. Um, sorry again not to be with you, and I, I hope you have a, a great discussion today. Thank you to Peter for his video message um, and for succinctly summarizing some of the recommendations from the report. I would now like to invite my colleagues here to offer some of their reflections and responses to those recommendations. Um, let's start with Robinson Cox. He's the Margaret Thatcher Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, where he specializes in counterterrorism and national security policy. Robin, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Melissa. Um, thank you for all being here, and, and thanks to USIP for inviting me to speak. Um, I 
I think it's a great paper and congratulations on it. I think it's a really important uh, contribution to the discussion. Um, I'm going to go through some of the areas in which I, I agree and, and maybe a couple of the areas where I either disagree or have some caution um, and hopefully will not be overly contrarian in doing so, but, but will perhaps kickstart a conversation. Um, so I think when it comes to the role of religious leaders, I, I, yeah, for sure, they definitely need to be involved in CVE. Um, I suppose the question is who and to what extent. So um, you may be able to tell I'm, I'm not from the States. My, I, I'm from the UK originally, and uh, a lot of my experience is, 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 is shaped really by the experience we've had with that in the UK. So some of my comments are going to be through that lens. Um, and my experience of this is that CVE and the, the question of religious engagement looks very different, not only region by region, but also even country by country. Um, so one of the things that I am concerned about, one of the things that happened in the UK when we looked at this subject initially, um, even going back to the 1990s, uh, was how do you avoid the situation where self-appointed religious gatekeepers spring up? So uh, the example from the UK would be um, there was uh, the Board of British Deputies uh, is a, a Jewish organization that was created by the government that was meant to reflect Jewish opinion in the UK. So uh, the conservative government at the time thought, well, it would be quite useful if we had a Muslim equivalent. So they encouraged the creation of the Muslim Council of Britain in the late 1990s. What ended up happening with the Muslim Council of Britain was that it was dominated by a very specific worldview. Um, it was a quite uh, minority worldview. It was mu much of the leadership was associated with uh, Jamaati Islami and other South Asian political Islamist groups. And so as a result, the engage the, the, the advice that government were getting back on, on Muslim issues, for want of a better phrase, was very much um, through that specific lens. And I think that's a kind of, it's a real lesson as to what happens when government policymakers, civil servants get lazy and they think, well, just tell me what Muslims think. I think that was the, the mindset at the time. And the result is you only get one specific viewpoint rather than the plurality, which reflects the plurality of Muslim opinion. So that was a real issue we faced in the UK and one that I think we're still working to unpick. On the, the credibility issue, which uh, the paper delves into and Peter referred to there, um, from, from the paper it says, uh, too often credible voices end up being code for religious figures who articulate views aligned with official government policy or who refrain from directly criticizing political leaders. I think that's one of those those situations which differ country by country. Because again, from the UK perspective, what ended up happening was that it was actually the, the real kind of liberal progressive wing, so the Quilliam foundations of this world, if, if we're familiar with them, those who were, who were vaguely supportive, basically supportive of government policy, they were the ones that actually ended up being dismissed as the least credible because they were seen as being if not working hand in glove with the government and working closely with them. Um, so it may be that the most credible aren't always 
the ones that says that are critical of both government policy um, and ISIS or Al Qaeda. I, I also, I'm, I'm, I think a bit, a bit to the, the fringes on this on this debate on this issue. But I'm, I, I also think credibility isn't necessarily the be all and the end all at the moment. Um, it's 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 a kind of slippery phrase, and I don't think we're always entirely sure what it it means or what we want from credible voices because the credible voice at the moment may be the one that um, it, it may just mean giving government funding or patronage to the most well-organized political Islamist groups who may not share basic values but are willing to criticize ISIS and therefore be portrayed as, as the good guys and I don't think that's always a fair characterization I think when we when we obsess about credibility the bar can be ended up lowering uh, too much, to an extent I, certainly I'm, I'm not really comfortable with. And I, I sort of feel the same about perception. I think governments worry too much about perception. Um, their involvement, and you know, when I speak to government officials, certainly in the UK, it's like, it, it was so much focused on, well, if we can just get our adversaries to like us, how, does, how do we fix, how do we move CV policy so that our uh, adversaries and our ideological competitors will come to see our point of view. My thought is is that that is that's essentially chasing a phantom. That the, the, the entire narrative and the way that some of these Islamist narratives work in terms of recruitment is that there's always going to be some new grievance. So I think that if, if governments are endlessly fixated on how they're perceived rather than just following the policy they think is the most uh, the most useful, then they're they're constantly going to be disappointed. Um, on the subject, and again, this is something the paper gets to, which I think is really important. And uh, once a government gives money to an organisation, to what extent can it then dictate that organisation's output, or should it have ownership over the views of that organisation? I think that obviously you don't want government money shouldn't come attached to saying to all of, the, all of a sudden an organisation should believe or push out A, B, C, D and E even if it doesn't believe it. What I would say though is that I think at the very least you should, you should want there to be no harm done. So the example I think of from the UK is there was an organisation created called the Radical Middle Way. It was UK government funded but not specifically uh, run by the UK government. And one of the first things it did was set up a debate in East London, um, which was, uh, is democracy the best form of governance for the UK? And it invited a member of the Revolutionary Islamist Party, Hizbut Tahir, onto the panel because it was, you know, want a broad church, want to engage all voices. And what happens, of course, is the guy on HT from Hizbut Tahir invites all his mates into the audience. The entire audience ends up being dominated by HT. There's a big vote at the end. Is democracy the best form of governance for the UK? And 95% of the people say no. I mean, it doesn't strike me as a fantastic use of government money. Um, and, you know, so, so we're moving on to the kind of moderate, the use of moderate as a... As a I mean, I understand why the scepticism around that phrase, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that much. It's not perfect. But I do think we should, um, I'm not against the idea of establishing some, some 
basic principles of, around the terms of CV engagement. Um, in the UK, we've done this, and with some controversy and, I guess, mixed success, but the, the government has a policy now that it won't fund organisations that aren't supportive of British values. You can argue about the definition of British values, but the ones that the UK government has used is uh, democracy, the rule of law, individual liberty, and mutual respect and tolerance of different faiths and beliefs. You, there will be disagreement in that. I don't think it's an especially unreasonable bar to set. Um, but that, and that's where I'd lead on to the area where I will conclude, but one of the things that I think the report brings out especially well and I think is very important is um, the downsides of dealing exclusively and kind of outsourcing CVE um, to uh, quietist Salafism and other political Islamist groups. Um, so this has been a, this is a, a, a theory that is very common and comes up again and again, certainly in the UK, the idea that, that those sorts of actors are a firewall from the really bad guys of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And I suppose the, the perfect example of that uh, from the UK would be when Abu Hamza al-Masri, uh, Salafi jihadi cleric who was running Finsbury Park Mosque in the 1990s, when the government was, tr was trying to kind of remove control, uh, remove his control from that mosque because he was, he was producing a conveyor belt of people who were going off to fight in Afghanistan and, and plotting attacks and the rest of it. There was an arrangement come come to that was um, pioneered by Bob Lander, who was a police officer within the Muslim contact unit of the London Metropolitan Police, where control of the mosque went from the Salafi jihadists to a group of Muslim Brotherhood or Hamas-linked guys operating in the UK. Um, I'm, uh, I, just, I just feel as if that's not really the way forward. I mean, some people have regarded that as a great success, um, I think that our policy, a good CV policy, has to be focused more on the counter-terrorism of here and now and, and ideally would help to create some more integrated, cohesive societies based upon shared values. That may not be possible. If it isn't possible, I at least want CV policies to do no harm. And I think too often in the past, it's one of them have. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Robin, for your thought-provoking comments. <laughs> Next. I'd like to invite Anne Wainscott to speak. Um, Anne is the American Academy of Religion Senior Fellow at USIP, and she's also Professor of Political Science at Miami University. Her research has focused on state management of religion and CVE efforts, which is also addressed in her recent book, Bureaucratizing Islam, Morocco and the War on Terror. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Melissa. You unwittingly gave me a promotion. I'm actually an assistant professor, but someday we'll hopefully be a full professor. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here with you all to discuss this very important topic, which um, Peter and Melissa have laid such a strong foundation for our conversation. And I look forward to your comments. Um, I'd like to switch the focus from the topic of religious engagement to focus on the state and how states play a central role in uh, the intersection of religion and CVE. Um, the US government's policy of a war on terror in response to 9-11 initiated, perhaps unwittingly, massive and unprecedented increase in religious regulation around the world, almost exclusively focused on Muslim communities. Whether Islam was a majority or minority faith in a country doesn't seem to have mattered or doesn't seem to have limited the, the ability of states to claim that they needed to regulate religion in a more uh, comprehensive way in the name of national security. 
From Ethiopia to Cameroon, Russia to Chile, states are using war on terror legislation to imprison journalists, human rights activists, and members of political and ethnic opposition movements. But more specifically, states are a central actor in the religion and CVE space. They largely control the funds for CVE efforts. They control security institutions and security discourse. And they can shape regulations for religious communities. One common intersection of religion and CVE where states are playing the dominant role is the increased regulation of religion in the name of fighting terrorism. In China in 2017, Tremendous regulation of Muslim communities was done in the name of state security. The de-extremification regulation by local authorities banned burqas, veils, and quote-unquote abnormal beards as extremist behavior. In April, the state banned a list of Muslim names. Parents who don't, do not comply risk losing education and health benefits for their children. These actions are defended as a way of protecting state security but are obviously about discriminating against an ethnic and religious minority who have serious political grievances. Many other states have followed suit, though I think China has gone a bit far. This behavior is, as I'm sure you imagine, the exact opposite of what the report recommends. In Mandeville and Nozell's words, quote, do not let CVE become a pretense for, for proscribing religion. The risk is real that some governments may use CVE policy discourse as top cover for violations of religious freedom and other human rights, or to crack down on religious groups or forms of religious expression that they perceive of as political opposition." Unquote. Now, it's not just states around the world who are regulating religion in concerning ways. I think there's a particular class of states that we ought to pay close attention to. These are states with religious identities that give them a kind of unique position since they can shape religious discourse through the adoption of state-sponsored theologies. Given the focus on Islam and CVE efforts, states that identify as Islamic states or Muslim states in their founding documents are uniquely positioned to shape the confluence of religion and CVE. States such as Saudi Arabia, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, other Gulf monarchies, Morocco, Mauritania, etc. One distinct manifestation of the concerted effort to control the religious field in the name of fighting terrorism has been the increasing sophistication of these state-sponsored theologies. While Morocco and Jordan have been perhaps the most successful at branding themselves the moderate Muslims, or as our friend Mahmoud Mamdani calls, the good Muslims, states such as Saudi Arabia are now claiming that they are the bearers of tolerant and moderate Islam. Yet again, Mandeville and Nozel recommend the opposite course, Quote, avoid endorsing particular interpretations of religion or using religious language and symbols in official government documents. State voices are generally not regarded as credible voices when it comes to religion. Referencing specific interpretations of religion or approved religious actors risks discrediting or even harming those cited, unquote. In the end, my view is that moderate Islam is a public relations campaign for the regime. When I was researching my book, Bureaucratizing Islam, Morocco and the War on Terror, which looks at how Morocco has instrumentalized its own religious identity in the name of fighting terrorism, I was, even I was surprised at how blatant the PR uh, nature of this initiative is. So I'm sure many of you are familiar with Morocco's efforts to train foreign imams um, in the country's Moroccan moderate Islam. This imam training center has brought the country literally endless 
good PR. If you Google search for videos on the Muhammad VI Center for the Training of Imams, Morshidi um, Morshidat, you will find a number of videos, Associated Press, France 24, TRT World, ZDF Germany, Agence de Presse Africaine, PBS NewsHour, it goes on and on. So I was a little surprised that when I arrived, I was denied entry repeatedly to this Imam Training Center. I was told I need a permit. When I went to request the permit at the Ministry of Islamic Affairs, I was subject to Byzantine and constantly changing rules about when I would receive said permit, including being handed a white sheet of blank paper and told to write my request, it would be taken directly to the minister. It did not take me long to realize that this initiative is more about projecting an image of Morocco as a moderate country than it is about training moderate imams. A few words to conclude. Though I personally view these legislative and institutional changes to be a concerning infringement on the freedom of religion and frequently a clumsy effort at managing the activities of opposition activists, human rights activists, and journalists in the name of preventing terrorism, I think we better talk about the fact that increased regulation of the religious sphere is frequently what is being demanded by citizens and sometimes even religious leaders. Indeed, this might be the most complicated aspect of the relationship between religion and CVE, for those, especially for those concerned with religious freedom, as so many in Washington are. Should organizations, institutions, and even governments oppose these regulations, which are so blatantly meant to limit the freedom of speech, association, and religion, even if states' own citizens are demanding them, the conversation quickly becomes one about the nature of democracy itself. Finally, the real problem with state efforts to shape religion as a form of counterterrorism strategy is that it implies terrorism is a religious problem that requires a religious solution. But that is not the case. Terrorism and violent extremism are manifestations of political grievance that require political, not religious, solutions. If states truly want to counter violent extremism, they will do well to address political grievances among their citizens. <clears throat> And if this is the goal of states, to understand and address political, economic, and social grievance, I think religious actors have a truly radical role to play. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Finally, Oliver Wilcox is Deputy Director of Countering Violent Extremism in the Bureau of Counterterrorism at the U.S. Department of State. He previously served at USAID, including as Senior Tunisia Country Coordinator during the Arab Spring Revolution and a senior Yemen policy advisor during the rise of Al-Qaeda and the Houthis. Thank you for being here, Oliver. Thanks, Melissa, uh, and uh, thanks to everybody for braving the uh, inch or two of snow. Um, what I'd like to do is uh, make a couple of general comments about the paper and then to hopefully kind of move the conversation uh, forward a little bit by uh, getting a little more granular and a little bit more operational uh, in terms of the conversation that I think the paper does a great job of uh, laying the foundation for, as has been said. Uh, and then I would like to just offer a couple of additional thoughts and take the privilege of being the last respondent to what my uh, colleagues have uh, uh, already offered the larger group. So what I'd like to do is uh, just make a couple of general points about countering violent extremism, which I think are important for 
any kind of CVE work, whether it involves religious uh, actors or leaders or other community uh, groups or uh, frankly anyone for that matter because I think that we need to, to bear them in mind. Uh, the first is that analysis and assessment are critical. And uh, I know on the, the face of it, it's uh, kind of an obvious statement to say, well, you need to really understand uh, the country, and, and frankly, not just the country, but the communities uh, that uh, you want to uh, work with, work in, uh, and find ways to support. Uh, and that's particularly critical here uh, because I think in the field of CVE, we've come to understand that uh, working at the community level is really critical uh, and having a sort of national level understanding of the dynamics and the drivers of terrorist radicalization and recruitment is necessary but uh, hardly sufficient. And there are basically three things that you have to unpack and understand at the local level. The first is what are the drivers of radicalization and recruitment in a particular community. You've heard Peter and other reference the range of drivers that uh, can be at play. Uh, the other is uh, you have to have an understanding of the geography of radicalization and recruitment. And again, this gets back to uh, which particular communities uh, you know, are these dynamics happening in, uh, in some ways more importantly, where's the potential for the problem to, to metastasize? Uh, and then the final thing is which demographic groups uh, or, or segments of the local population are being radicalized and recruited or are the most vulnerable? And it's very easy uh, to say, well, we're concerned about youth. Uh, and youth susceptibility to radicalization. When you look at many countries around the world and you take the 14 to 24 uh, demographic, uh, we know that that is one half or two thirds of the entire population. So just talking about youth uh, broad brush uh, is not very helpful. So we need to unpack these things before we can even get to talking about in a particular country or in a particular community what is the role of religious uh, actors uh, in countering violent extremism. Uh, the second thing is that, I mean, context is obviously very key. We've talked a little bit about the UK context. Uh, we touched on the US context in terms of the Establishment Clause and then you know, Anne talked a little bit about the Moroccan case. Uh, Morocco is obviously very different because the state has a ministry of religious affairs. Religious life is uh, highly and over time or historically increasingly regulated, not just there, but in many other Muslim-majority countries. That's a very different situation than Western Europe, North America, etc. So. We have to um, think about that when we talk about exchanging good practices or lessons learned. Uh, even here in the United States, we have a federal system. You go to certain countries in Western Europe uh, and they have very centralized uh, systems uh, that operate in a more top-down as opposed to you know, local and state levels kind of percolating up to the federal level, which uh, is, is more the model here. And that has 
consequences for how we think about the role of religious actors or again any community actors when it comes to CVE. The final sort of general thing I'll say is that ideology does play a role and we can talk about and recognize uh, the range of factors and I would add to that uh, prisons and uh, mistreatment or abuse at the hands of law enforcement. We found um, anecdotally uh, and I think in a couple of cases more statistically, I don't know if it's statistically significant uh, work that's been done uh, that prison certainly uh, is an incubator for radicalization and recruitment. Um, so more particular to the, the paper, I think as I said that the paper does a very good job of framing the sort of big picture issues. It sort of challenges and helps to clarify the kind of broad assumptions. But what we need to move on to now is a sort of more granular, more operational understanding of what works and what doesn't when you want to work with and support religious actors and incorporate religious actors into a broader sort of CVE initiative or program. Uh, Alina touched on the point that um, CVE is really a whole of society, or if we want to talk locally, a whole of community approach. And you know, the thinking here on one level is rather straightforward that everybody, if you're an educator, if you're a social worker, if your parents uh, has something to contribute to this effort. Uh, and that uh, sort of, it's fine to have unity of purpose, but there does need to be unity of effort working at the local level. And so if you take that broader view, uh, in, in many cases, it may be more about how do you incorporate religious leaders into a broader CVE effort and how do they work with and partner and leverage other community actors uh, in that space. And, and that's somewhat of a different uh, approach than looking at religious actors or religious leaders as sort of a standalone um, you know, constituency uh, or, or type of interlocutor to, to engage with um, and, and possibly support. The second thing uh, is just a word on intrafaith and interfaith dialogue. And the reason I mention this is because uh, these are, or this is a, a sort of field of work that um, is very well established. And I think sometimes there's still a tendency to conflate interfaith and intrafaith dialogue with preventing or countering violent extremism. That's not to say that uh, these kinds of approaches don't, in certain contexts, have a role to play, but uh, simply because you get uh, a multi-confessional or multi-religious uh, set of leaders together at a conference and they discuss uh, relationships uh, between the faiths and what can be done to improve that in a particular country and then they issue a statement afterwards, uh, that does not equal uh, preventing or countering violent extremism. It's not to say that when you do that work at a local level that uh, it can't uh, be part of the response. Uh, I also want to emphasize support for religious actors in the CDE space is much more than just messaging. And I think that there's a range of roles and approaches and types of work that religious actors or religious leaders can do, particularly at a community level. 
but unfortunately, I think there is also a tendency to boil that down to, well, if we simply train religious leaders in how to be more social media savvy, uh, get them on Twitter, get them on Facebook, uh, that uh, you know, that's sort of uh, both a necessary and a sufficient uh, effort here. But I think that uh, there is a broader range of skill sets, if you will, that religious leaders may need. Uh, having an understanding of youth development and youth psychology, having a localized understanding of what actually drives radicalization and recruitment in a community context. We can make the assumption that local actors know best uh, and that they don't have their own assumptions, uh, but in fact, very often, uh, they do have their own assumptions, and a very common assumption is that poverty drives or is the main driver of radicalization and recruitment in their particular country or in their community. And we can talk a little bit more about the research maybe in the Q&A, but we know that um, poverty is not a uh, key driver of uh, the problem set that we're dealing with. Uh, just a word about sort of formal religious institutions. Uh, they can be helpful in terms of securing buy-in and support for doing certain CVE initiatives. And also taking a longer term view, they can be important to sort of institutionalizing and expanding these kinds of efforts because often these kinds of efforts start in a very local or in a very sort of pilot fashion. And if you want to kind of do this work over a longer term, you, you need or often need the religious uh, leader buy-in. Um, the Establishment Clause was mentioned, uh, particularly with respect to sort of the US government and what we can't do. Uh, and I would just encourage us to think about what we can do within the confines of the Establishment Clause. And uh, there's a lot that different parts of uh, the State Department and I think our USAID colleagues uh, have supported over the years that relate to this problem set uh, that are good examples of working within the Establishment Clause and, and supporting religious actors um, you know, in this space uh, and not sort of running afoul of uh, the law or of um, legal guidance. Um, just to conclude, uh, I, I would say that I think CVE fortunately has progressed beyond the point that um, we're trying to get somebody to like us. Uh, I think that we really at least uh, outside of North America or Western Europe uh, are really trying to uh, recognize what the local dynamics and drivers are and uh, working with foreign partner governments and civil society actors to recognize the problem, respond to the problem, um, not just with our assistance, but also on their own. So thank you. Thank you so much, Oliver. Now let's turn to the Q&A. Susan Hayward is our Senior Advisor for Religion and Inclusive Societies at USIP, and she will be joining us here on the stage um, to channel Peter Mandeville for us. Um, if you have any lingering questions, um, please do pass them to Chelsea and Emily, um, who are in the aisles, um, and we'll do our best to address those in the few minutes that time allows. So I will use my seat as moderator for a quick moment and ask um, one question. I'm aware that we, other than Susie now, don't have any religious actors themselves represented here on the stage. Um, and I'd like to ask a question that 
um, we will often hear in the field from religious actors. Um, so I'll direct this one at Oliver. I know I cut you off a little bit at the end and wrapped you up early. Um, something we often hear is that many religious actors who are working on CVE will say they recognize they have shared goals with the government and um, the security sector on issues such as recruitment to extremist groups. Yet there's little consensus in terms of how they, as religious actors, can do so. What would you suggest they do as a starting point? Well, I think we recognize that when we come in to do CVE work, uh, again, this really applies across the board, not just with religious actors. Uh, I'll take the example of prisons. Uh, when you do CVE work, our job is not to come in and work with prison staff to fix the prison top to bottom and make sure that it runs uh, efficiently, effectively, so that we can then layer on uh, you know, whatever the CVE specific intervention or program is. And I think you know, the same thing holds true with the religious sector uh, or religious actors that you basically take the context that you're given uh, and you know, there may be certain this gets back to the sort of skill sets that may be lacking uh, among particular religious actors. Uh, and it's more than just uh, they're not really present on social media or they don't have a, a, a sort of savvy understanding of how to use social media to advance their, their message and their narrative. Uh, it's about uh, what actually Peter uh, often calls the pastoral skill set. So that's often um, a deficit here, and it has tie-in to how you engage with women or youth uh, in ways that can be helpful to uh, prevention. I think that also helping uh, actors in a particular country or in a particular community sort of break down stovepipes or misperceptions about other actors that are operating in parallel. And so this may uh, apply to the security sector or to uh, law enforcement. Uh, and getting the actors to sort of sit around the same table and understand, have a shared understanding of what drives radicalization and recruitment in that particular part of the country and that what is each one doing how can they partner or collaborate together? So sometimes just that convening uh, function and that sort of leveling uh, the, the understanding of the players and making sure that um, they have that understanding and can, can think, start thinking of ways to operate together, uh, you know, can be can be something that um, you know our our assistants or other assistants can help to facilitate. Uh, but I would emphasize we don't sort of. <coughs> we're not dictating in that particular context. We're simply helping to open doors and to sort of convene people, usually at the front end of a particular program. Thank you, that's helpful. So the next question I'd like to direct at Robin. This question comes from Hina. The dilemma between most credible and self-appointed representatives of religion comes from the fact that there is no single way a religion is practiced. Any effort to include religious input would end up alienating one or more subgroups. 
How then can this process be made more inclusive? Yeah, I mean, I think that that, that kind of gets to the, the heart of the, the issue of the first, first point I raised. I think that, well, I mean, the plurality of voices thing, I think, is, is, um, is important. I mean, first of all, recognizing that there isn't just going to be one group you can reach out to, one subset of the community, or one religious leader that is going to be able to deliver the, the Muslim opinion, that there is a whole variety of opinions on any one subject, uh, which I don't think we always hear, but, but that there isn't they, that one group out there that can represent the entire opinion, although, you know, I'm aware that also I, I, I set myself up as, a, as potentially somewhat hypocritical on this because I also think that, as I referred to earlier, there are, while you should, you need to, need to <coughs> uh, engage with a range of opinions, I do think that there are some organizations that have been engaged with in the past that have not been helpful interlocutors and maybe shouldn't be part of the conversation. So it's not easy, it's not perfect. I think that you are gonna end up, government policy uh, is gonna end up being inconsistent somewhat. But I think that the, the, main, the main thing, and, and I think this is an area where we, we have, the CV conversation has developed, I think in a good way, is just to make sure that you carry on engaging with a plurality of voices and don't allow that gatekeeper situation to arise, um, and that's that's just a. I mean, it's just making sure that you don't get lazy. I think, and 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 also, and th and that those communities, the dynamics change so frequently, and that what may be a representative or useful group five years ago isn't necessarily now. And so I think it just it lends itself to making sure that that engagement is very much proactive and and, and always uh, trying to take account of the of the local dynamics. The next question is for Susie and Peter, who's obviously not here. Um, so I'll send this to Susie. Um, the question is, women, youth, and religious actors are often lumped together um, in one category in CBE. Do you find that categorization useful in practice? Why or why not? Okay, thank you, and thanks to all of you for um, coming today. So yes and no. Um, this is a classic case of the corrective comes with problems all in its own. The, the, the move to recognize the important role that um, women, youth, and religious actors play and to include them in peacemaking and peacebuilding and in preventing and countering violent extremism came about because those groups had historically been marginalized. So those who are primarily at the table, those who are primarily getting the funds and the resources and the support for peacebuilding activities writ large tended to be older men. And so there, was, there were a lot of efforts in the peacebuilding realm to draw more attention to um, the needs of these groups, the activities that they were doing, their priorities in peacemaking to ensure they got um, support. And all of that gets mirrored in some of the CT and CVE work. But I think the challenge that then arises is um, it oversimplifies things. I mean, look at me, for example, I fit at least two of those categories. I would argue three, but not everyone would, um, as, a, as a woman and a religious leader at the very least. So many people have these intersecting identities. They don't fit 
perfectly within one or another of those categories. And then two, in, in trying to divide out groups in that way, it creates fragmentation that it can also lead to competition. So I often hear, you know, from some of those within the youth peace and security realm or within the women peace and security realm, some concern about religious actor engagement, that if we engage more with religious actors, then that it's a zero sum, that that means less opportunities for youth or women to be participating in it. So it sort of creates that classic competition between um, peace building and CBE initiatives. So I do think it's useful in that it draws the attention to groups that have historically been marginalized and who have different priorities and different influences that need to be taken into account to have a more holistic and effective CVE policy. But I think it also needs to be um, approached carefully to ensure that the ways in which the, the policy and the programming plays out doesn't create these false dichotomies and competition between groups. Thanks, Susie. Anne, a question for you. In a country in which the government is over-regulating religious institutions and ideas as part of its counter-extremism measures, in what ways, uh, sorry, in ways that can restrict religious freedom, what would you suggest religious actors do to work more effectively with the governments? I think they should take a two-pronged approach. I think, and I think this applies more broadly than religious actors, actually. I think anyone concerned with the over-regulation of the religious space um, needs to kind of balance two competing imperatives. The first is the need to point out the really egregious actions done in the name of CVE counterterrorism um, to limit religious freedom. But the, the kind of counteraction or the, the, that needs to be held in tension with acknowledging when there are more acceptable, appropriate, or productive initiatives coming from the same institutions or the same um, government bodies. So I think there needs to be this counterbalance between uh, between kind of picking your battles with the state and really focusing your efforts on what is most problematic, but also acknowledging that problematic actors sometimes also run really great, really great programs simultaneously with enacting legislation that, that um, limits people's civil liberties. Thank you. Oliver, question here for you. <laughs> um, Given the damaging missteps in the past, how are policymakers and practitioners being educated about religious dynamics necessary to smartly engage religious actors on factors contributing to violent extremism? And then specifically, does the State Department provide such a training? Well, I think that um, training is obviously important and the Foreign Service Institute uh, does and has been sort of building its capacity and slowly expanding its offerings um, in this space broadly. And then I think uh, with respect to uh, religious leaders in particular. So from a sort of formal or informal training or capacity building perspective for ourselves internally, uh, I think that you know that's something that's in train. And I would also just note that the uh, sort of, without speaking for Susie slash Peter over here, the sort of broader outlines of this particular paper uh, were developed when um, Peter Susie uh, was uh, in his last, uh, or her last uh, iteration of government. Uh, and uh, that process, putting together that particular paper 
convening people to talk about it and to uh, sort of get their uh, input on it uh, and to be able to sort of finalize it in a particular uh, fashion internally uh, was itself, I think, an educational uh, experience for folks. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, from a sort of policy development perspective uh, over the last few years and also from a training perspective that uh, internally we're probably further along uh, on the state side than maybe we get credit for. Great, thank you. I think we have time for probably just one more question um, and I'll give this one to Robin. What role can religious actors play in terms of de-radicalization in particular? For example, helping to reintegrate former members of extremist groups um, in here it's written in Iraq or Libya or if there are other examples that you can think of. Well, yeah, I mean, the one, uh, Iraq and Libya I, I'm, I'm less familiar with, but the, the thing that uh, we're trying to deal with at the moment in the European context is which religious leaders to use in terms of uh, returnees from Syria and Iraq. Um, not just the, um, not just the, uh, the adults, but also how do we get religious leaders involved um, in trying to integrate back into society some of the children mm -hmm. that were born there um, or were, of course, taken there against their will and some of which have been forced to do, um, carry out horrendous acts of violence, um, but the prosecution either isn't going to be appropriate or, or, I mean, some of these kids not even at the age of responsibility when they did these things. So, um, that's one of those areas where I, I think European governments are definitely really reliant on religious leaders in, in trying to work with psychologists and others in trying to bridge that gap and, and, and bring people back. Um, but, uh, trying to, I mean, the great citizens, essentially. Um, and that's where, but that's where I think it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's hard for religious leaders because no matter how, who you pick and which ones you engage with, that's an extraordinary task. I mean, it's an extraordinary, respons extraordinary responsibility to put on them because there's only, of course, so much any one person can really do on that sort of thing. And, and obviously, I mean, this is going to be, some of it is, is trial and error. We're not always going to get it right, but there has been examples of, of um, Channel, the, the de-radicalization program that exists in the UK, has worked with imams, um, with some success. Um, not always, it's not gonna be, I don't think any of these sort of initiatives are gonna have a 100% success ratio, and even defining success is, is a bit difficult because it's, do you turn them away from being, are you, are you aiming to just prevent them from carrying out acts of violence, or do you want to try and create a, bring, you know, make them a more integrated citizen? I, I think we've not always fleshed that out very well. Um, but certainly there is, there's, an increasingly relevant role for them, uh, for religious leaders as we deal with this fallout from Syria and Iraq, for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much, and thank you to all of you for um, such interesting and thought-provoking comments um, from each and every one of you, and thank you for joining us here today. Um, a reminder that you can continue this conversation online with hashtag ReligionCVEUSIP, and I look forward to continuing the conversation um, with all of you and all panelists here today. Um, quick note for those who are staying for the invite-only Religion CBE workshop, 
Um, after this, we'll have a short break and we will meet um, on the second floor, so same level that you exit at the top of the stairs here, um, in a room just behind the staircase there, B203, 204, if you see anyone from USIP into your boss. Thank you again all so much, and safe travels back to your destinations. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.